Would you join with me asking God specifically for grace to understand and to uh, actually enjoy his great work in the life of this saint. As Ray said, not to honor the saint. I think Edwards would probably have a real problem with that, but to honor the God that we're going to see in his life. So pray with me for that end. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in the breath and the life that we now have. We are mindful to know how greatly you've demonstrated your love for us in giving to us Christ, even while yet dead in sin. Uh, He has come and been a perfect representation of all of your glory. And now that through him and in him, we find life and life to the full. So, Father, you have given us a servant, many servants, in the history of your church. And uh, I ask that in describing your work in this man's life, that your church would be further uh, strengthened and edified to believe that the same God who is so great here will be great with us as well. And I pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. So A.W. Tozier wrote, he used to be a pastor, deceased pastor in Chicago the last part of the middle part of the last century. He says, next to the Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be Christian biographies. In other words, seeing God's grace in the work of other people. And so every year, as you know, this is probably the seventh or eighth year running, we uh, take a Christian in the past uh, that God has uniquely used, and we just speak about his life, both how God worked in it, but also um, some lessons drawn from it. Uh, Really, the three reasons Ray referenced, 1 Corinthians, I'm thinking also Romans 15.4, that God gives us the saints of old to encourage us. The second reason I want you to see, too, is that you see, as you see God's grace in in Edward's life, uh, you will be encouraged, God, will you work in our life in a similar way? And then thirdly, when we go over ages and times and places and we speak about these men and how God mightily used them, it shows the expanse of grace and faithfulness of God that across time and places and ages... God is yet working and displaying his power. Now, most of you have heard of Edwards. That's the man I'll be speaking about today. I've quoted him often. But I think few of us either fail to appreciate the massive influence that he has had on the church, or we have categorized him as just an angry old preacher. And, uh, and that's all he was, and glad that he stayed with the Puritans, and we're out of that season now. But I I want you to recognize that most historians, even secular historians, would say that he probably has had the greatest impact. He could be considered the single most important evangelical in America. Probably one of the greatest minds, some think the greatest mind American soil has ever produced. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones was coming to the States. He was a preacher in London in the mid-20th century, and he was a dynamic speaker, world-renowned, powerful preacher, brilliant man. And uh, he was giving a talk on Edwards, and he said this was one of his most difficult tasks to do. And here's what he said. He said, I am tempted, perhaps foolishly, to compare the Puritans to the Alps, Luther and Calvin to the Himalayas, and Jonathan Edwards to Mount Everest. This great mountain peak pointing up to heaven. And Lloyd-Jones saw himself as a little climber on the hill. So if you continue that comparison with me. <laughs> Don't even want to go there. Now, when, when I go through this and, and the reading I did and the reading I'm going to encourage you to do, um, his gifting and his stature are profound. They're unique. They really are. And, they, and the temptation is that we'll get discouraged over, well, that's him. It could never be us. But Robert Murray McShane was a great Scottish preacher in the 19th century, and, and he loved... In his diary, he records, bought Edward's works, and and he feasted on them. And and here's what he said when he compared his life. He said, how feeble does my spark of Christianity appear beside such a sun? But even his was a borrowed light, and the same source is still open to enlighten us, in that while we can never do what they have done, we can be encouraged in the power of God and in his grace and that if this man is so great, how much greater God must be. And that's really the direction I want us to take. So what I'm going to do is go through his life briefly, and then I'm going to try to draw some lessons 
out of his life. So you don't need to take notes. If you want notes, my notes, I'll just send them to you. Um, I'll send the file to you. But just sit back and, and listen and absorb what God has done in this man's life. So Edwards was born, the only son to Timothy and Esther Edwards in October 5, 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut. He wasn't the only child. There were 11 children, 10 of them were girls, and they all were over six feet. So they used to say of the Edwards that he had 60 feet of daughters. His father and maternal grandfather were both ministers, and so Edwards was educated in a home uh, along with other students in the community because the pastor was often the only educator in town. He was raised in a godly home. Rules were very strict in this Puritan home. At the same time, love was in abundance. Intelligent child. By the age of 11, he wrote a 3,000-word uh, paper on the nature of flying spiders that was considered worthy enough to be submitted to the Royal Society of London. At 13, he had a reading knowledge of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and thus he was sent to the Collegiate School of Connecticut, which is obviously today Yale. And, uh, and remember now, he wasn't sent to Harvard because that's where his dad went to school because Harvard had already gone left theologically. Here's the charter of Yale when it was established. To promote the power and piety of religion and the edification of these New England churches. It's important to stick to your charters. At Yale, he distinguished himself sim- not simply as graduating first in his class, class, but the breadth of his writing topics. He wrote a paper on the definition of an atom, its constitution, gravity, and repulsion. He wrote on the nature of why stars sparkle. Profoundly brilliant, brilliant man. Now, he was intelligent, and he was uh, a religious child, but he wasn't converted at a young age. In fact, he had practiced the spiritual disciplines. Big warning here, parents. Uh, He built a shelter in the woods to pray. He practiced spiritual disciplines. He was not saved. His religion was this external conformity to rules. He speaks about the pains and the difficulties of his heart. So he, he, he evidenced some acts and marks of grace, but that doesn't equal conversion. And he says this. In fact, he struggled with Reformed theology. He said, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of divine sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But then in the spring of 1721, he's just yet 18, 19. He's still at Yale. Here's what he writes about his conversion. And and, and he would argue that conversion is an act of God first. God regenerates the soul with an awareness of the greatness of God. Here's what he writes. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words of 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the scripture alone opened his eyes to the greatness of God. And he says, as I read these words, there came into my soul, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything ever experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up in him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ, the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. So that's the opening of the eyes that God can do to the hardest, the dullest, the blankest of souls. So that happened while working or studying at Yale. He went on to pursue an MA, Master's of Arts. Uh, In the meanwhile, he did a short-term pastor at New York City. You could get an MA, not always living on the campus. His father encouraged him to come back, though, and complete the MA, which he did do, and then took two years and tutored students. It was then, in 1726, that he was called to his grandfather, his maternal grandfather's church in Northampton, to be an assistant pastor. And so he did. He was ordained in the winter of that year and then got married in 1727 to Sarah Pierpont. It has multiple spellings and perhaps multiple pronunciations, but Pierpont, the daughter of one of the founders of Yale and also the granddaughter of Thomas Hooker, who was the founder of Connecticut. So it's kind of marrying up. Listen to the love that he has, not just for his bride, but the faith of his bride. So he writes these, and this is recorded in the flyleaf of his grammar book. He says, They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being, 
who made and rules the world. And that there are certain seasons which this great being in some way or other, invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him, that she expects after a while to be received up where she is to be raised out of the world, caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her far too much to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and be ravished with his love and delight forever. You notice the language he uses. He's not this angry old preacher. He is caught up with the glory and the beauty of God. He would describe his marriage later, and especially in uh, his last letter to his daughter as he was dying, as an uncommon union. It's really sweet. One one biographer of the previous century said, perhaps no event of Mr. Edwards' life had a more close connection with his subsequent comfort and usefulness than his marriage. They would have 11 children. So after two years of ministry, Solomon Stoddard, this this grandfather, great man, um, died. And so Edwards now is taking this big church in Northampton, this profound move. Solomon Stoddard, by the way, had seen revivals come through the church. The church had grown. He was an author. He was published. They called him the Pope of the Connecticut Valley. So, so for Edwards to step into this at such a young age was huge. And it was significant because Stoddard had some divergent views on church membership and communion, which would later come back and create some real conflict for Edwards. Now, Edwards was not a social person. He was more of a inhibited. He would study for 13 hours a day. He would meet with people as they came to him. He did not go out and meet with people. Uh, He would be writing down thoughts, intellectual man. Um, There are some misconceptions of Edwards, especially about his preaching. We don't actually know a ton of how he preached. There are certain things that go around about his kind of reading real low. We don't know exactly how he preached other than he would normally exposit a text He would draw the doctrine out of that text, and then he would apply it to the church. That was a typical Puritan way of preaching. For the first 20 years, he would write his sermons out in full, and he would rely heavily on the notes as he preached them. His voice was low and calm without gesture. He kept his eyes on his notes or at the bell that would ring, the rope that would ring the bell in the back of the church. One admirer said this about his delivery. It was easy, it was natural, it was very solemn. He had not a loud or strong voice, but appeared with such gravity and solemnity and spoke with such distinctiveness, clearness, and precision. His words were so full of ideas set in plain and striking light that few could draw the attention as he. Very strong preacher. Now, soon after taking the pastorate and beginning to see the church from a different angle, he saw actually the flabbiness of the faith of the people in Northampton. And so he, he said he saw their bitterness, their gossip, their lack of Christian growth. Here's what he wrote about the church as he began to get in more of the inner workings. He says, they come to meet from Sabbath to another and hear God's word. But all that can be said to them won't waken them or persuade them to take pains that they may be saved. They are grazing about the assembly, minding this and minding that. Or they're thinking about their worldly business. So he began to see... Uh, the fact that the Christianity within Northampton as a whole had become very nominal, which led him to begin preaching about the nature of true conversion. He preached a sermon later published, A Divine and Supernatural Light Directly Imparted to the Soul. This sermon was issuing a clarion call to be saved, to understand, are you actually saved? So he's challenging his people who are calling themselves saved, are you really saved? He began preaching on justification by faith. In fact, he preached out of Romans 4, 5, which began a spark in Northampton. Here's what he says about the transformation that began. Remember now, in, in New England, it was, it, was one, it, was, it was British America is what it was. And it was one town, it was one church in one town. That's what it was. And, and there began a spark of revival in the church which began to affect the town. And he wrote this about the awakening. He says, no longer were people backbiting. The town's three taverns emptied. Family life renewed. He said, even among the, the people in the church, he said, the old story took on new meaning, beauty, and power. He says, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world 
became universal in all parts of town and among persons of all degrees and ages. Other discourse than of the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated. So he was convinced there was a true work of God's Spirit in play, not because of the emotions, but because of the fruit that was being born. He says the fruit of a growing desire for God's holiness, a growing humility before God, a love for the written word, and a deep and abiding love for God. Those were the evidences of true faith, not just cognitive understanding of the faith. Now, in this time, he produced some of his greatest works. One of them, the first, was a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. So he wrote about what happened in Northampton. And he wrote it in a letter to a friend in Boston who sent it to England. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, took it, published it, and it even was published in Germany and Holland. It even sparked revival in England. Uh, This would slow down, which led him to great dismay. And it showed a bit of his spiritual experience. Edwards tended towards melancholy. Edwards tended towards struggling. And, 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 uh, but it would be revived again in the 40s. So in 1740, 41 and 42, a revival began to kick off. But now it was beyond uh, Northampton. It was beginning to hit all the colonies across the Atlantic to Britain. In fact, this is when he re- read, uh, he, he wrote uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, probably his most famous sermon. Some of the language is graphic. Incidentally, he didn't preach it at his own church. He preached it at Enfield, a church down the way, while another man was preaching at his church, setting a revival there. So Edwards, along with George Whitfield, who was a British itinerant evangelist, Wesley, others, flame was burning across the lands. Pretty, pretty. In fact, they think in America as many as 25 to 50,000 people were converted in those revivals over those years. Now, sadly, with any revival, there are excesses and abuses, and there were with this, and it began to cast doubts in the minds of many about the genuine nature of this revival, and these excesses are well documented. They're quite embarrassing, but what it moved Edwards to do was use his great skills at writing to begin writing about the nature of revival, true revival, and so he would end up being its biggest supporter and also its greatest critic of Uh, And Distinguishing Marks of the Spirit and Some Thoughts Concerning Revival in New England, written in uh, 1741 and 42, were books that were dealing with that. Okay, so during this rest of the 40s now, uh, he would have Whitfield preach in his church. Uh, He would begin to write more, but he also took in David Brainerd, the first American missionary. We did a a biographical sermon on him a few years back. He had TB. He was dying. It is God's providential kindness that Brainerd came to Edward's house where he would eventually die. Edward's own daughter would minister to Brainerd. When he was sick, she would contract the disease that he had, and she died months later. Great tragedy that these people lived through with great hope in God. But him coming there, Edwards got his diaries and his writings, which he published, and it really set off a missionary zeal. For the next 150 years, John Wesley would keep a book of Brainerd's in his satchel as he rode for encouragement. He didn't agree with the theology of Edwards or Brainerd, but he could not deny the power of God's grace in Brainerd's life. Again, biography is very, very important for us. Okay, sadly, so this this man's a rock star, right? He is a rock star for us. But within a few years, the tide began to change in the church. Sadly, conflict began to come. Now, and they they dismissed him. They fired him. They fired Edwards. Now, what would cause this church to fire a man that was so greatly used? A number of reasons, but the biggest one was over the issue of membership and communion. Now, Edwards uh, took the church from Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard uh, walked out this thing called a halfway covenant. And a halfway covenant was a capitulation to people that did not evidence true fruit. What I mean by that is this, that uh, they would want to join the church they could affirm the covenant, and, uh, and they could live a moral lifestyle, but they couldn't show true evidence of regeneration, some of the marks that I've been speaking about. And so they were brought into the church, but they couldn't take communion. It was a halfway covenant. They could come halfway. And then, of course, they could have their children baptized, and it was further diluting the glory of the church. Now, what Solomon Stoddard did was Solomon Stoddard allowed these halfway participants to now take the Lord's Supper, which they never used to be able to do. And here's why. Because he came to faith as a minister through communion. 
You saw the grace of God through communion. This is a classic example of the danger of allowing experience to drive theology rather than theology of interpreting experience. Because he was saved with communion, he was drawing all the people who weren't even saved to communion. Well, Edwards was opposed to this. And so he began to initiate reforms where for a person to join the church and to take communion, they would have to agree to a profession of godliness. And let me read what he wrote. And I want you to ask yourself, can you say this? He said, this is what he asked people to say, or to at least be able to agree to. I hope, I truly find in my heart a willingness. Notice the grace in that. I hope I can truly find in my heart a willingness to comply with all the commandments of God which require me to give myself up wholly unto him and to serve him with my body and spirit and do accordingly now promise to walk in a way of obedience to all the commandments of God as long as I shall live. Now, this caused a ripple. The first man in 1748 that wanted to join the church, he asked him to read this. The man refused. Well, that set a spark in the town. And the town began to turn, the town and the church began to turn on Edwards, saying that he was lording it over them, and he was trying to judge the sheep and the goats. This is what Edwards said about it. It got angry, and it got, it got hot fast. And here's what he wrote. Things here are in great confusion. The tumult is vastly greater than when you were here. He's writing to Joseph Bellamy, a friend. He said, the people have got their resentments up to a great height. I need God's counsel in every step I take, every word I speak, as all that I do and say is watched by the multitude around me with the utmost strictness and with eyes of great uncharitableness. All my actions are represented in dark colors. They seem to be sensible that now their character can't stand unless it be on the ruin of mine. Now, I do want to say that history will prove Edwards true that those who followed Edwards in this remained orthodox. Those who went the way of lowering church membership and lowering the requirements of the table became and slipped into Unitarianism. So sadly, in 1750, after a few years of this heat, they dismissed him. They fired him by a vote of 230 to 23. But listen to the reaction of David Hall. He was a member of the council that was to advance his firing. So this is not a friend. He says, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance, the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God, whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies. This is the key to understanding Edwards. He was so caught up in the greatness of God that he was untouchable by the darkness of men. On the last Sunday, as their minister, he preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and and the verse in 12 to 14, but the verse that he parked on, was, as you have acknowledged us in part. So he's speaking to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is a letter where Paul's really defending his apostleship because the church is turning against Paul because these other men had come in and preached a, a, a different gospel and they were, they were criticizing Paul for not being a true apostle because he had suffered so much. And so Paul's writing and saying, as you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, there's going to be a day of reckoning between the church and its pastor the church and its leadership, its elders. There's going to be a day of reckoning. And here's what he preached. He said that he has tried. And here's where his words. He said, I have spent the prime of my life and strength in labor for your eternal welfare. You are my witnesses that what strength I have had, I have not neglected, excuse me, in idleness, but I've given myself to the work of ministry, laboring in it night and day, rising early, applying myself to this great business to which God has appointed me. So he's preaching that he has tried for them. But then he turns it to them and says, but you will be also accountable to God for how you treated me. And he wrote to them, he said, the contentions which have been among you since I first became your pastor have been one of the greatest burdens I have labored under in the course of my ministry. He said, let this late contention about the terms of Christian communion as it has been the greatest be the last. Can you imagine? I remember reading his sermon at night. It was like a novel. I mean, it was him going right at the church, not in a mean-spirited way. In fact, he goes on, and he prays that God would grant them a good pastor, acquainted with God's mind and will. He says, thoroughly warning sinners, wisely and skillfully searching professors, and conducting you in a way of eternal blessedness. Now, at this time, as difficult as it is to believe, there were few opportunities. So he's out of a job. He has no savings. You can imagine you're in, the mid four, you're in the mid-18th century. And here's what he writes to his friend. This is where he feels he is. He says, 
I am now, as it were, thrown upon the wide ocean of the world and know not what will become of me and my numerous and chargeable family. He still had ten children in the home. Nor have I any particular door open in view that I depend upon in my future serviceableness. He goes, we're in the hands of God and I bless him and I'm not anxious concerning his disposal. This faithfulness in the middle of great fear. Here's a fitting tale, by the way. So when he's living there, and he's probably he didn't get a job for 12 months, and I'll tell you about that in Stockbridge. Uh, and the church actually asked him to fill the pulpit on 12 different Sundays while they were looking for different ministers. Isn't that unbelievable? I won't do that, by the way, <laughs> if you're thinking anything. But two women who were predisposed to judging Edwards as being at fault, they had never met Edwards, they had never seen Edwards, but they came to the church during the pastoral search on a Sunday that Edwards was preaching. So one of the ladies said during the sermon, this is a good man. And then the other woman said, as the sermon progressed, the woman said, this is a holy man. Now this good and holy man, of course, was Edwards that they had not even realized. And when they did, I imagine they were in quite embarrassed. But not insignificant, too, during this time, it was put forth to Edwards to plant a church in Northampton. And he refused to do that because he knew it would divide. So within 12 months, though, he took a church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And uh, Stockbridge was a frontier town at the time of this country. And it was an Indian settlement, much like Brainerd. He's now working among the Indians. Here, Edwards is a national, a world-known apologist of the revival and a promoter of the glory of God. And he's now working in a small church with a few white families and two different sets of, uh, two types of Indians and a handful of Indian families. And, um, and it was not easy there. In fact, the problem in Northampton was generated in part by his cousins. Uh, his cousins, the Williamses and the Hawleys, and they had family in Stockbridge. So when he went to preach in Stockbridge, the problem followed him there. Uh, now, it quickly was resolved but the problems that they faced in, in um, Stockbridge were over finances and health and safety. Let me explain a few of them. Uh, they were so poor at this point that Edwards couldn't afford to buy paper to write on. He had to stitch various clips and pieces of paper to form pages. His daughters had to begin lace making and fan painting to sell their wares to support the family. Now, one part, at least as he gave, one of the reasons, in part, was that he had two marriages uh, that he had to pay for. That's where I identify with Edwards, um, kind of. But uh, the, the health issues, they faced health issues. Uh, his wife, Sarah, almost died in 1752. Edwards fought malaria for a year. The Indians, Indians had come from the north and had killed a number of settlers so that oftentimes soldiers had to be garrisoned in Edwards' home. So you can just imagine, he is a world-renowned, brilliant scholar. He has helped lead and direct and give voice to the revival, is now out in Stockbridge, the edge of the world, uh, with soldiers in his home, working among Indians, teaching them grammar, teaching the kids grammar. I mean, profound. You can imagine the struggle you would have to have humility going into that, which he had. But it was here, out of this trial, that some of his most significant works were produced. Freedom of the will, the end for which God created the world, doctrine of original sin, nature of virtue. These books are still some of the highest theology, philosophical theology that has been written. They're tremendous books. Now, Edwards, he'll be there for six years. He receives a call now to go to the College of New Jersey, or which will be now, of course, Princeton, he rejected the offer to be their president. But to be uh, true to seeking the will of God, he called a group of ministers together. The ministers together said, we think you ought to go. He says that he wept when they gave him that word of wisdom. Only time that Edwards records, he wept. He wept other times. The only time he recorded it, because he didn't want to leave Stockbridge. But he went and submitted himself to the counsel of his brothers, which is profound. And, and the sad thing is he was taking the presidency from the past president, Aaron Burr, who actually was his son-in-law who died. And so he takes the presidency. He's, he is um, 
installed in February 16, 1758. Within a week, it was recommended that he receive an inoculation for smallpox. It was going throughout the area. And then within three weeks, he caught the disease and was unable to take fluids. Fever ravished his body. And facing death, he's going to write to his daughter Lucy, who is still in Stockbridge. And and before I speak about how he handles death, I want you to put this in the context of an already difficult life and how we handle death. And so, because I'm going to try to draw some application at the end, the very sweet words, and, and, and hear them in the context of an 18th century man. He says, it seems to be, and also in our day and age of prosperity and immediate healing for everything. Listen to what he writes. It seems to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long existed between us has been of such a nature as I trust spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now likely to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. March 22, knowing his death was near, he spoke to his relatives and friends, gathered, and he said, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? At hearing this, they began to grieve. They thought he just died, and so they began to pour out this emotions. And his eyes opened, and he said, he looked at them, he says, Trust God, and you need not fear. And then he died. Interesting to note that his daughter remembered that when he was leaving his home in Stockbridge to take the presidency at Princeton, he left, came back in the house, opened the doors, and looked at his wife and said, I commit you to God. Then he turned and left. Sarah's wife and many of his children obviously were still in Massachusetts. Two were near him. The rest were not. She responded to her daughter, Esther, when she heard the news that he had died. Here's what she wrote to Esther, her daughter, who had just lost her husband. She said, these are just incredible words. This is what email is going to ruin, by the way. Just for the record, these letters have been preserved for us to understand these things. He says, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouth. That's from Psalm 2. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we have had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. You see that, I mean, this is not the fruit of an angry, boring, tough preacher. It's a man who was caught up with the glory and the beauty and the excellencies of God. Six months later, she died and followed him. And a legacy they left. They've done some trailing out of all of his descendants. Out of this union, 13 presidents of higher education, 65 professors, 300 preachers, 200 missionaries, 13 senators, a governor, a vice president of the United States, 75 military officers, and 56 doctors. That is a lineage. And that is born out of an uncommon union. So there's much to be gained from this. I, I think about Abel in Hebrews 11.4. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Edwards does still speak to us. And I think there's some lessons that we can draw out of this. And I just want to ask you to, to don't try to get every lesson. I've got about eight or nine of them here. But I just want you to hear me as I say them and see what may apply to you. A couple of things we can learn then from Edwards is number one would be the importance of living in the reality of heaven and hell. This is one thing I've been impressed by. When people think about Edwards, they think about him preaching hell and they think about him simply preaching sin. And, um, and he saw them as realities. I mean, does the Bible teach heaven and hell or not? And when we read, for example, in Revelation 19, when you read about Christ coming, and treading the winepress with the fierceness of the wrath of God. What do we do with that? 
What does a preacher do? Does he speak the truth? The preacher's role is to apply the truth of God to you. And so when you see these things, Edward's metaphors were over the top. They were significant. But let me remind you, the metaphors that we use can never describe the reality. The metaphors are always underneath the reality. And so Edwards was trying to use language that was so descriptive to show us the reality. And what kind of preacher would he or I or any of these elders be if we didn't speak to the nature of hell and the nature of heaven? He didn't see the reality of these truths to scare people into faith, but saw these realities to be God's means of waking us up to the eternal nature of God and what we'll face. One biographer said that uh, the New England people had already known the gospel remedy. The problem, Edwards said, was to get them to seek it. In other words, one must know that he is lost before one must know he can be saved. The challenge to us is, do you think on these matters? I mean, we are comfortable, pleasantly so here. So to think about the realities of heaven and hell demand much of you that you're not used to giving your mind to. To think about the nature of hell. To dwell upon it. It's significant and it's difficult. What are your eyes focused on? Do you think about heaven and hell? Do the joys of heaven draw you? Do you look forward? Will you be one of those at the end of your life when you're dying and I visit you? You're clinging to life because you have no desire or no pleasure or no expectation of what is to follow? Or are you going to be, are you going to be holding life lightly because what you have is far greater there than what you have here? But secondly, I think we can learn the importance of sin being preached. You know, sin is not preached in today's world. It's dropped out of our languages. Most preachers avoid it. And you, you've heard me say that before. Well, Edward saw it as the starting point of preaching. And not just, in, and please don't slip into thinking, well, that was just then. It is the nature of man that Edwards was going after. See, Edwards wasn't preaching simply about behaviors. He was preaching about the nature of man. For Edwards, it's not simply what we did, but it's who we are. And if preaching is ever going to lead to you being changed, it has to deal with the nature, and the nature is sinful. It's not just the actions. In fact, preaching about sin leads men and women to see the danger of the wrath of God. See, the wrath of God is not a passion of God. The wrath of God is a holy response to the nature of men. And if that isn't changed... Then, then the wrath of God, so don't ever think the wrath of God is he's just ticked off and he's fed up with us. It is a response to, it's his holiness coming down on our ungodliness. In fact, he wrote, the conviction of sin is God's ordinary way to show the danger of it before salvation. Now, he's sadly perceived as this angry, mean-spirited preacher. He actually spent a ton of time on heaven and the excellencies of Christ. He spent most of his time talking, in fact, one of his best sermons is regarding the joys of heaven. He wrote that the main work of the minister is to preach the gospel. He says the law is preached only to make way for the gospel. He said legal fears awaken men, but they don't draw men to Christ, but they need to be preached. Do you believe that? So when I preach on sin... We don't want to fear, well, I can't bring a friend to church because he might hit sin again. And You know, people have literally come up and tell me, I, I, just, I feel good when Joel Osteen preaches. They may not feel good in the end. I don't want to just hammer him, but, but any prosperity, any preacher that avoids dealing with the nature of man, which is by nature broken. Okay, we can also learn the importance of affections in true conversion. This is really important that I, I want you to... Draw your minds deeply too. Then and now, we struggle with nominal Christianity. Each generation is too easily satisfied with this head knowledge of God without ever you considering how much affection do you have for God. Now, the uh, question asked by every generation is, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, the people of Northampton had a cognitive understanding. They had a moral lifestyle. And with that, that was enough. Well, Alan, uh, Edwards challenged this. In fact, his book, Religious Affection, which you can read, by the way. It's difficult, but you can read it, and it's very good. speaks to the nature of true conversion. And he addresses the primary role of the affections 
of the heart in revealing the genuineness of salvation. The difference, and I quoted this a few weeks back, but let me repeat it. The difference between the mere knowledge about God's love in Christ. Let me, let me read this slowly. I love this. The difference between a mere knowledge about God's love in Christ and a true spiritual experience and beauty of that love was like the difference of knowing that honey is sweet and actually tasting the sweetness of honey. Have you tasted the sweetness of Christ? Are your affections moving and growing towards Christ? Are you resting on some four laws that you've understood? Or are you resting on some cognitive or mental understanding? But your hearts have never been moved with passion towards the one who died for you. Let me read you out of 1 Corinthians 16.22. This is passed over by us all the time. Here's what Paul says at the end of his letter. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. In other words, let him be damned if you have no love for God. That is the seriousness of love. And so Edwards was going after his church and saying, if you don't love God, but you believe all the right things about him, you're in deep, deep trouble. Because a true, because remember, what, what the gospel teaches is that God takes out a heart of stone, he puts in a heart of flesh that, that, that has a natural migration towards God and, and has a natural love for God. That's the, that's the being born again. That's the changing of the nature. And so if the affections are not there in your life, then you need to ask yourselves, why? What is the gospel to me? If you don't have a growing love for holiness, if you don't have a, a growing hatred for sin, now I still love sin. I have pet sins, but, but I don't like them. And I'm trying to move away from them. So it's that growing love for God that is the evidence of true conversion. And people, you've got to ask yourself, particularly parents with children too, you want to see that they come to faith early? That's why we don't let children come to the communion table. We don't know that they have been saved. There isn't the evidence of a rejection of sin and a developing affection for God. That takes time. It takes the temptation of sin to turn away from the evidence. Yes, a genuine conversion has taken place. Ask yourselves that. Please don't leave this sermon without applying to your heart the question, do I love God? Do I love God with my heart, my soul, my strength? Do I, let's say you don't, do I despair over not loving God? Do I desire to love God? I mean, even the desire to love God is something significant. Okay, fourth, uh, we learn of the tenuous and gentle nature of the church and her leadership. Listen, when I read that farewell sermon, as I said, I was up half the night. I mean, it was incredible. I gave it to the elders the next week, and, and I, we're going to have the, all the interns read it. Here's what he writes in this, and I want you to realize, you, you know, you can have had a good friend <clears throat> and things just go sideways and you don't know how it got there. Here's what he writes to his church. This is when he's preaching his farewell sermon. He says, ministers and the people that have been under their care must be parted in this world. How well soever they have been united. If they are not separated before, they must be parted by death. In other words, he's thinking a minister stays in a church until he dies. They may be separated while life is continued. He said, we live in a world of change where nothing is certain or stable and where a little time, a few revolutions of the sun brings to pass strange things, surprising alterations in particular persons and families and towns and churches and countries and nations. It often happens that those who seem most united in a little time are most disunited and at great distance. Thus, ministers and the people between whom there has been the greatest mutual regard and strictest union may not only differ in their judgments, they may be alienated in affection, but one may rend from the other, and all relation between them be dissolved. The minister may be removed to a distant place, and they may never have any more to do with one another in this world. But if it be so, there is one more meeting they must have, and that is in the last great day of judgment. We have that day. It's amazing to think about. We need to be mindful of the fragility of our relationships, not just between leadership and people, but between people and people. We all know how things can get ugly fast, and you don't know how it's happened. There is humility. There is patience. There is long-suffering that we need with one another. Us as a leadership team, we're going to often lead in a way that you may not initially agree with. You don't just leave. 
you're responsible to speak to us. We're responsible to sacrifice for you. I, I'm always moved by Paul's letter in First Thessalonians when he says, he says to the Thessalonian church, he says, you are my joy, my crown, my pleasure at the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul sees himself before this church as when Jesus Christ returns, this day of judgment where the church and her leadership stand face to face with God, that's gonna be a, that could be a great day. It can be a great day. It doesn't have to be a day where we shrink back because we canned Edwards when we shouldn't have. It can be a great and glorious day where we are leading you, sacrificing for you. You are loving us, serving us. We're serving you. It could be a great day displaying the greatness of Christ and his church. So let us be mindful of this. Let us not take for granted these relationships we have. I only have a few more. We learn the indispensability to see and enjoy the glory and the beauty of God. God's glory is the overriding theme of the Bible in Edward's mind. He says God created all things for his glory, and his glory includes our joy. Now, you, many of you have heard John Piper say that, you know, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. It came right from Edwards, and he says that. Listen to Edwards. He wrote these resolutions. So Edwards wrote, after coming to faith in Christ, he writes 21 resolutions by the time he's 20. Read them, but sit down when you're reading them because they're very strong. He added a bunch more after that. And here's what he wrote. First resolution, he said, I'm resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure. In other words, <clears throat> God's glory and your happiness are bound together. That's why the mission of this church is to love God's glory. <clears throat> In fact, I think much unhappiness within the church is because we're trying to get our happiness out of things outside of God's glory. But if we sought God's glory in everything, that's where our happiness ultimately will be. We also learn the benefit of the consideration of your mortality. I ask you to think about your death often. I know I do. And you probably think I'm morbid and wear black when I'm in the house. But, but there's value in that. There really is value. Notice how Edwards dealt with death. Notice how his family dealt with death. It wasn't intimidating to them because they thought about it. They prepared for it. In fact, the, the doctor who administered the inoculation that ultimately killed him, here's what he wrote to Sarah Edwards. Jonathan's wife, he said, it pleased God to let him sleep in the dear Lord Jesus, whose kingdom and interest he has so faithfully and painfully served all of his life. And never did any mortal man more fully, now listen, never did any mortal man more fully and clearly evidence sincerity of his professions by one continued universal calm and cheerful resignation and patient submission to the will of heaven through every stage of this disease. In other words, he took it well. He says death had certainly lost its sting as to him. He didn't fear death. He looked at it and went right through it. It's the way it would be. But it's because he thought about death. In fact, one of his resolutions, number nine, he said, I am resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying. Psalm 39 says nothing different. Show me my life's end. Let me know how fleeting my life is. That I'm a mere phantom in vapor. That's what the psalmist calls us to do, to pray to know our life's end. Why? Because you can't live a good life if you don't know it's going to end. The people that die well are the people that live well. So, th and this was written when he was in his 20s. So we want to be thinking about it now. Ma many of us don't plan for our deaths until we, you know, a few months prior and we get all of our stuff in order. But we want to do it now. We want to do it today when you're living. We don't want to ignore death. We don't want to deny it. We don't want to make up tales. At so many funerals, I hear people say, well, I just know they're having a great time now. And I ask, how? I mean, how do you know that? I mean, really? I mean, are you just placating yourself? We also learn much about God's direction through the council of believers. Much wisdom lay within the council of other believers in submitting to it. The fact that he submitted to his peers and went to Princeton in opposition to what he wanted is a valuable lesson for us. It sounds crazy in our world of individualistic thinking. I mean, some of us, you'd never consider thinking to get a group of men around you to ask their opinion about whether you should take this job or not, whether you should move or not. What about the children? What about issues facing your life? To gather around a group of men and say, I want to submit myself to your wisdom. But that's what we do as a church. That's what the elder board is, is it not? I mean, we have a council of men, and we don't make any decision. And that's why a team of elders is significant. We have no decision is made in this church apart from a group of men coming together. 
I would encourage you to think that. I would encourage you before you make moves in your life that are significant to get a group of men, women, friends, close Christian friends around you. We also learned that truth wins out in the end. Edwards endured much gossip and lies for a time. I want to remind you, and we saw this in Spurgeon's life last year, but let me just say this, that after Edwards died, Joseph Hawley was his cousin who was a main instigator, wrote a letter of confession and had it published in a Boston newspaper over how he mistreated his cousin and Edwards. That, that's pretty significant to write a letter and have it published in the paper. So when people gossip and lie, you don't need to defend your honor. God, God will do that just fine. And then last, I think, we learn, the, we learn the importance of living with intentionality. Now, this may press you a little bit here. That's why I wanted to end with it so I could get down after this. But that Edwards lived with an intentionality that was significant. Um, in terms of his time, res, um, his resolution number five, resolved never to lose a moment of time. He used his time well. He thought about his time. He didn't expect to just go uh, on forever with time. He used his time well. Consider how you use your time. Is it used for the glory of God? Is it used for the edification of the saints? Is it used for the building up of others? His eating, his um, resolution number 20, resolved to maintain strict temperance in eating and drinking. He would only eat the things that he he found his body easy to digest so that his mind would be sharp to think through the things of God. That's dedication to God. God must be awful worthy to go to that much trouble. Bible study. He resolved, number 28, resolved to study the scriptures steadily, constantly, and frequently. He took a Bible, he took all the pages out, and he slipped a white piece of paper between each page. He put a line down between them so he could write notes on every single page of the Bible, learning the scriptures. He was just studiously trying to understand God's will as revealed in the scriptures. Creation. He was intentional on studying creation. We go past God's glory all the time, don't even think about it. Here's what he wrote. He said, when we are delighted with flowery meadows and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we only see the emanations of the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ when we behold the fragrant rose and lily. We see his love and his beauties. God has given all of us this beautiful creation to look at, to see. These are just just reflections of how much more will we see when we see him face to face. So that is the challenge for us, that we are passive. We read the Bible, as one author said, like we watch TV, and we don't watch what we eat, what we think about, what we study. And I would just encourage you with Edwards. This is strong stuff, I admit. But um, we have a few minutes. Do we have a few minutes? No, I'm going to pray for us. I'm sorry I went a little bit longer. Uh, I will pray for us that this would be an inducement to a greater love for God. If you have any questions, if there's any, even if, if, even if you're non-Christian here and you have questions about this, I'd love to entertain them up front. Please come and uh, I will pray for us. And then um, uh, I think we have some announcements and, and some uh, words to be given. Father, thank you for this time and uh, thank you for the grace that you've given to this man. Would you be glorified and honored in the application of this truth? Uh, to the hearts of these people. Father, even though I went long, may their hearts be strengthened and buoyed in the truth that was given. And um, I commit them, I commit this church. We will be before you one day. And I commit them and myself, the leadership of this church, to you, that it might be a day of great rejoicing and a great joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.